hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. After last week in which we threw it back to the old way of doing things, we're back to the new format. So Carly is going to tackle two query letters that were directed at her, and Cece is going to do the same. Carly, why don't you kick us off with that first query letter? Dear Miss Waters, given your interest in women's fiction, I hope you will consider my novel, Delia by Design. Complete at 82,000 words, it is 99% mine and in a holidays meets HGTV and will appear to readers of Kate Claiborne and Mahari McFarlane. Interior designer Delia Deltoile business is booming, although it's not for the reason she'd hoped. Thanks to a surge in demand for office renovations, Delia is coerced by her domineering boss into a partnership with an IT consultancy firm. While she'd rather develop her own client portfolio than specialize, Delia changes her tune faster than the time it takes to swap out an accent pillow when she meets the consultant in charge, her longtime crush and family friend, Finn McCaffrey. Growing up in a working-class family, Finn has always believed that interior design is for bored, rich people. 
but when promised a promotion that will help pay his father's escalating medical debt if the partnership is successful, Finn puts his opinions aside. Plus, he's all but forgotten the incident when he and Delia were teenagers that changed the course of their friendship. Before long, what starts as a professional relationship develops into something more, as Delia's love for Finn reaches new depths and Finn rediscovers long-buried feelings. However, when someone from their past resurfaces, bringing with him painful memories, Finn suspects Delia's boss of stealing Delia's ideas for her projects, and they'll find that being together takes a lot of decluttering, and that the best things in life won't happen by design. For your submission guidelines, please see below for the first five pages of my manuscript. Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Kimberly Crow. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. What was your take on the query letter? So I really liked the first paragraph. I always like it when we get right to the bare bones factual things. So we have our genre, our comps, our title. Yeah, I think the Delia by Design, it sounds like an HDTV show. So I thought all of that was really on brand. I checked out the comps. I didn't actually know the comps, but I checked them out and they definitely check out for me. One of them was a UK author. The other was American. So I think that that balance worked out pretty well. So I just want to kind of get to the kind of premise situation here. So whenever the premise is built upon a romantic event, I feel like we have to know why they are forced together, why they are forced apart, right? All of that is so important to actually the built-in hook of it all. And so for this, it was okay. So she works for a business and he's in another business and these two businesses have to come together. So a lot of this is kind of business related. And so I just wasn't, I wasn't really sold, I think, on why necessarily these two businesses have to work together or why these two people have to work together. Because the line is that thanks to a surge in demand, so therefore, you know, here we go, economics lesson, right? So if you have a a surplus of something, there's a huge interest in something, then her company should be able to choose who they work with. But they're saying, okay, there's a surge in interest and therefore she doesn't have a choice about who she works with. Like that's supply and demand kind of 101. This hook really wasn't working for me in that sense because again if there is lots of opportunity out there she should be able to work with you know whoever she wants so I just wasn't clear on why exactly she had to be forced into the situation necessarily and I just wasn't fully able to suspend disbelief and in the next section we have these business partnerships kind of coming together as I said so they both need something from each other right so we know that Delia needs to be able to spread her wings and fly Finn, what does he need, right? So he needs to pay for these escalating medical debts, but it's all dependent on this partnership. And again, not really clear why these businesses have to come together, right? So I feel like that hook and that premise just needs to be finessed a little bit more. And maybe it is in the story, it's just not reflected in the query letter. So I would just put a lot more emphasis on that. I really like, I think it's the last plot paragraph here. I think this is good. So we get into why are they coming together, rediscovering long buried feelings, you know, someone from their past resurfaces, et cetera, et cetera. And they're kind of starting to work together. So I think that part is good. I just need to know why are these guys smooshed together and just make that a little bit more clear. One thing that was missing in the query letter was the author bio. I wasn't sure if that was just because for the sake of the podcast, they didn't kind of want to put that in there, you know, obviously trying to preserve some anonymity, you know, it's totally fine. But just a reminder, if that was not intentional to make sure that you do have an author bio paragraph in there. Wonderful, Carly. Before you move on to the actual pages, Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that quickly? I want to say that I really like the fact that the author told us what the present day conflict was and didn't just rely on their past relationship. Oftentimes with this kind of query, authors do that and this was not done here and it was awesome. And I also missed the author paragraph. Please always include that unless it's for privacy reasons of the podcast, which Carly said. 
Okay, great. Thanks, Cece. Carly, would you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages and then your take on it? So we start off with chapter one and it says Delia. So I'm almost wondering if we're going to get multi-POV here, which if that is the case, then again, just needs to be mentioned in the query. Okay, but that said, so we're in Delia's point of view. She's at a spin class. She is sweating. She <laughs> She's getting a huge workout in. She's with her friend. They're talking a little bit about her working relationship and how she kind of has to get to the office and she's doing that banter in a, in a nice lighthearted way. Then we, we spend quite a bit of time talking about spin class and her her business her business model how much she does or doesn't like her boss note she doesn't like her boss and she makes her way to the office she talks about how she loves the design of the office it's very glam but she's a little bit more eclectic so we're starting to kind of again little learn a little bit more about her and then on the last page of our sample we find out that her boss has decided to hire an it consultancy firm and delia is confused about that and so that's where we are All right. So in terms of my analysis of these pages, so I think number one, we are focused too much on our main character's appearance on the first page. So we start off in the spin class and it's a lot about like her clothes are clinging very tightly to her and and all of that sort of stuff. And I just feel like don't know if we needed that on page one it takes up to be honest most of page one so i don't know i just didn't think we needed to get into the the body stuff necessarily that quickly just mostly because it doesn't tell me that much about her it just says you know she sweats a lot and she wears tight clothes which everybody sweats a lot and wears tight clothes at the gym then we find oh i forgot to mention this in the in in my summary which is she is moving in with her friend the friend that she was at the gym class with and we find out it's probably because she did a breakup with her partner and then we get into this kind of back and forth with her with her friend that she was at spin class with and Steph says uh, that reminds me here you go roomie I leave for the restaurant room four but if you need any help moving anything the doorman Joel is awesome and so we get the sense that you know she's moving in with her friend during some sort of tumultuous time in her life and I found this interchange a little bit confusing because I wasn't really clear on who is coming and who is going necessarily because she says okay here's the key it could have been that Steffi was giving the key back to her friend because she was at her place like it just really wasn't super duper clear where the flow of people kind of were going and moving from and to because then Delia says thanks I got rid of most of my furniture when Mark finally asked me to move in with him I shouldn't take up too much space so I it was very subtle and for a novel that so far hasn't been all that subtle not in a bad way but it just you know it, it's it's telling us what's going on I just found that conversation a little bit unclear so I would try to clarify that a little bit but there's a lot of really good banter there was this you know you don't take enough space if you ask me you know that's a nice thing for a friend to say and I really I really liked that line to say like you know you gotta stand tall stand a bit bigger so I really liked that and again really cute banter here as well about Delia's relationship with her boss I just I thought they did a really good job with that friendship banter I found that we spent too much time at the gym so on page four we were still gathering our toiletries getting ready to get in the shower at the gym and I just found that to be I don't know a little bit long so I would try to get out of that spin class as fast as possible have your quick witty banter you know get the workout in and get to your office right because even though we do get this kind of dramatic reveal on on the last page about the IT consultancy thing, we're still spending a lot of time at the gym. So I would try to get out of that. One thing everybody asks me about, I'm sure CC, you know, we're always talking about this on Twitter is, am I allowed to talk about the pandemic in a book, right? In a manuscript. So there's this really subtle line here that I think I actually liked, and I think this works. 
So the line is, long before the pandemic hit, I subtly mentioned going to school to get my certificate and then taking the exam to qualify for licensure. That seemed to have fallen by the wayside. I thought that was a really subtle, just, you know, name dropping the pandemic, but not dwelling on it. And I thought that was a really subtle, subtle thing. So all that to say, I know in the past we've been like, don't talk about the pandemic, but it's been going on for years at this point, right? So so I think a drop here and there is is okay. And then the dramatic kind of hook at the end here is, again, so we've decided to hire an IT consultancy firm. And she goes, I'm sorry, what? And again, really confused on this because every business needs an IT company. And I'm just so confused on why we're so hung up on this IT consultancy. Like, what is the big deal about working with these people? Like, every business should have an IT company that they work with. So I'm just not clear on whether they are renovating them or they're, again, they're going to be working in their office. And why would somebody care about IT that badly? Like, I feel like we're shoehorning this hook. Just something to be aware of. But overall, I think the banter is really sweet. I just think we need to really just focus, focus, focus on the hook and why they need to be smashed together in a good way, because the bodies will be smashing, I'm sure. (laughs) Awesome, Carly. Thanks. Cece, was there anything that you wanted to add on those opening pages? To add to what Carly said about her reaction at the end, the emotional calibration seemed off to me. And one thing that I discovered is that if you try writing the same scene in a different POV, you might have better success at fine-tuning that calibration. So maybe the writer wants to try to write it in the third person. It's easy to sometimes get the emotional calibration off when you're really inside the character's head. So that might be something to consider. All right. Thanks, Cece. So for our listeners, an interesting episode that we've got coming up is with Mitzi Angel, who is president and publisher of FSG, and she's also Sally Rooney's editor. And she has a different take on pandemic books and talking about COVID. So listen out for that for those of you who are hoping for better news there. All right, Cece, will you read your first query letter for us? Let's do it. Dear Cece, Everyone knows monsters aren't real. Maybe if Lizzie Markham didn't keep seeing them, she wouldn't be in a psychiatric ward sketching them. Again, and her father, the Honorable Judge George Markham, wouldn't be arranging to, quote, Britney Spears, unquote, her. John Doe doesn't remember how he ended up the psychiatric ward's latest patient, and he's not sticking around to find out. He's got an escape plan. But everything changes when he glimpses Lizzie's drawings and they trigger a flashback of him battling one of those monstrous creatures. Before either of them can make sense of the discovery, Lizzie's monsters attack and John's jaw-dropping fighting skills kick in. Hunted by assassins no one else can see, they escape the hospital and go on the run. Lizzie harnesses the torment of a misdiagnosed mental illness and fights alongside John. As their passions grow impossible to resist, their survival hinges on them figuring out who John is, where he's from, and why he possesses abilities that aren't exactly human. Best described as Jason Bourne meets Sumerian deities, Them is an action-packed, fast-paced, adult, romantic sci-fi with serious potential. Complete at 95,000 words, it will appeal to fans of J.R. Ward's Black Dagger Brotherhood series, as well as Shannon K. Butcher's Sentinel Wars. I chose mental illness to address the stigma and alienation people often face. Sensitivity and respect were my priority. Thank you for your time, Nancy Savard. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. What's your take on that query letter? To begin, I would follow the book hook cook method that, you know, Carly introduced us to and that I am also a fan of. I think that, you know, the first paragraph should cover 
word count, genre, title comps. We do get that when we get to the last paragraph, but I would have preferred to see that way up top. Another thing, and this is a matter of personal taste, what happened to Britney Spears was really serious. And so I'm not sure that using it so informally is landing in the intended way. I I would just revise that. And if it's something you want to do intentionally, then by all means, just I'm not sure that it's landing in the way that you want it to be landing. And then in terms of the plot, right, because that's the part that I most care about, as always, the line that says, as their passions grow impossible to resist, is this supposed to mean like their attraction to each other? Because I think it does, but then I, it says passions, right? And I'm wondering, like, is this a passion for something else? It's, it just got me confused. While the hook seems very cool, it does concern me that the story seems to be writing on who John is, not who Lizzie is, right? Like, it feels like the major dramatic question is very much who is John. And I find it hard to connect with protagonists, in this case, Lizzie, when the major dramatic question is about someone else. Like, it's a personal preference, but it's something to be mindful of. I also, in terms of writing out titles and stuff, I always recommend using all caps or italics. It gets really, really distracting. I had to stop and reread certain sentences because I felt like some commas were missing. So I would just, you know, do a little bit of fine tuning to this because I, I do think you need it. And then I would also like to know a little bit more about the author at the end. But to Carly's great point in the previous query, perhaps you're just trying to retain some privacy because this is a podcast and everyone can listen to this. So if that's the case, that's totally fine. But if this were like a regular query, I would like to know more about you. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add there? Good. All right. Cece, what was in those opening pages before you give us a breakdown of your take on them? So the story begins with Lizzie at her job. She's a tour guide in a museum. She's currently giving a tour to kids. We learn little bits about the protagonist's background. For example, the fact that she wasn't popular in school through the on the page plot. Like in the same example, she's observing the popular kids as she's touring the museum. We also learned that Lizzie was diagnosed with schizophrenia and that she believes she's cured despite what her doctors say. In fact, she stopped taking her medication three months ago and she hasn't had a hallucination in a year. Except, of course, she does see a monster. And there's a scene break. And then three days later, a new scene begins. Lizzie is in what she refers to as the psych ward. Her parents are there. They're meeting with Lizzie and her doctor. And through dialogue, we learned that her father had been hoping for a private meeting. But Lizzie insisted that her doctor be there. And Lizzie clearly has really complicated feelings for her father. The author did a really great job of adding emotional context there. So that's what happens. In terms of my take, there were things that were working here for me and things that weren't quite landing. So for example, from the pitch, I'd say this seems like action-packed sci-fi. And so I don't know, maybe at a countdown or something, like X days till the battle with blah, blah, blah. I don't know, like it didn't feel quite action-packed. And I'm mindful that we're in the opening scene, so you have to establish character and tone. But then, you know, maybe adding one little line like a countdown would accomplish that. You know, something that is working really well is that we're always advising writers to not say their work is funny in the query letter. We're always saying, let the writing speak for itself. And the writer here did not refer to her own work as funny. And yet it is like I was chuckling on every single page. So that's great. I wonder if she could lean into non-derivative ways of describing the monster. So for example, when Lizzie does see the monster, her hallucination, at least we think it's a hallucination, we see a seven-foot-tall green-skinned beast with a thick T-Rex tail, Freddy Krueger claws, piranha teeth. Everything is a reference, right? Like the Freddy Krueger claws, the T-Rex tail, the piranha teeth. I think that 
it's basically like a mashup, like a collage, piggybacking on what the reader already knows. And I just feel like it's your job as, a, as the author to include, especially in the first five pages, original description. And I would also include a little bit more of sensorial details, like was the monster's breath really hot? Did the monster smell like anything? Was the monster's tail flicking from side to side? I just feel like movement is also important to make the hallucination really, really real. I also, because there's a timestamp in this new scene, the scene break, the three days later situation I mentioned, I would start with the timestamp. You know, let's let's sing the timestamp song. I, I'm not going to sing it, but let's all sing it in our heads because I think that timestamps would help. I also want to compliment the author on doing a really, really good job of adding little bits of inner life. She has a clear point of view, and it's something that I've been able to pick up from the first page. So when her father says, I requested a private meeting with my daughter, you know, in her head, she goes, ergo, no witnesses. And there's tons of little examples of this, of how the writer infused the author's feelings and thoughts in a really subtle yet effective way. So I think you really nailed conveying the author's thoughts and feelings about things. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No. All right. Carly, would you like to read the next query letter? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I have never been a fan of podcasts, so no one was more shocked than me that I've become an avid listener to the shit no one tells you about writing. The insights and knowledge you each give to the writing community has fueled my querying and give me invaluable tips that I can't thank you enough for. I'm seeking representation for my debut novel, Be a Mighty Downpour, a multi-POV market thriller coming in at 86,000 words that is steeped in its southern locale. At the heart of this is an homage to small town life, how it molds its inhabitants both for the bad and good. But on the surface, this is a tale about a friend's death and the secrets and crimes buried beneath the thin line that divides poverty and power. This novel has rich characters who could have stepped off the pages of David Joy's Where All the Light Tends to Go, has pacing akin to Lucy Foley's The Guest List, and will appeal to fans of gritty roughneck characters and locales like those highlighted in Yellowstone. This novel is poised to be the first in a series of four, each spanning a week's time in the month of February. 26-year-old Blair Woodford has returned to her grandparents' farm in the small town of Salt Ridge, Kentucky, to live with her older brother, Adam. Not where either of them thought they'd be at this stage of life, Adam's wife moved out on him just months before, leaving him brooding and alone, and Blair returned in the years following college to put the tragic disappearance of her roommate and childhood friend Hattie behind her. But as the five-year anniversary of Hattie's disappearance looms, Caleb Davis, her older brother Adam's best friend, suddenly passes away, seemingly from natural causes, and those same familiar emotions begin to consume her again. Adam, however, is fixating on an uneasiness that something more is going on with his friend's unexpected death. He's heard speculations that the vices overtaking the hills and haulers might be seeping into the shinier parts of town, and that the money coming through the county might be tainted. His suspicions are magnified when he received an ominous letter from Caleb the day after his death, convincing him that his friend may not only have known something more about the dark hidden world of venality flowing through the town, but that may have led to his demise. Blair and Adam each navigate the week leading up to Caleb's funeral as lifelong friends flock back home to pay their respects, many adding fuel to questions surrounding the town's inner workings and how it might relate to Caleb, yet each continues to mourn privately, not confiding their fears or piecing together the clues that continue to come to light. Each will need to entrust the other to decipher the difference between reality and rumor. Only then can they hope to find just how deep these roots run through their community to uncover the truth of what happened to Caleb before anyone else is harmed. 
My name is blank. I am a Southerner, proud of the place and the people who have made me who I am, and I actively look to find more novels representing that on my bookshelf. I graduated from the University of Blank with a Bachelor of Arts in English and have worked for the last 15 years in marketing for memory foam mattresses and really delicious bourbon. I live on a small farm in Blank with my husband, two children, and three pygmy goats. Thank you in advance for your consideration. Thanks, Carly. And before we get your take on that, for this particular author, I have been stalking poor David Joy on social media, and he has agreed to do an interview with us at some point. So look out for that as well. All right, Carly, what was your take on that query letter? Okay, I'm going to start with the technical elements, and then I'll get to thematic and plot elements. So in terms of kind of broad strokes advice to everybody listening, I don't like the opening line, and I'll tell you why. There are a couple of reasons. There's the word never in it, right? I never. I don't like any time there is an element of negativity in a query. So the word never, so I never, right? We're talking about absolutes. One of the first words in this query letter is a negative word with negative connotations. So anytime, you know, you're tempted to do this, even though it's kind of a backhanded compliment, it's obviously a compliment. We love that you're obsessed with the podcast. We are also obsessed with our own podcast. But just try to reframe that in a way that doesn't bring an ounce of negativity, right? You don't want your name ever to be associated with any element of negativity. So avoiding any tone of negativity in a query letter is one of my number one tips. So that's just a structural thing for me. Okay, so next, we're a little bit on the long side. This feels this feels pretty long to me, but I'll tell you some ways we can kind of trim and rework some things and move some things around. So I think we need to cut the line at the heart. This is an homage to small town life. It's not that it's a bad line or a bad word. It's just we kind of get that through the rest of the query. So I think you just need a bit of confidence to believe that your query letter is doing its job, right? We don't have to hammer home things multiple times. Just let the work stand for itself. So either cut that, put it in your synopsis, or find another place for it. Next, errors. So Lucy Foley, her name spelt wrong. I don't believe there's an E in it. I think it's just L-U-C-Y. The word locale has used multiple times times. So just that repetition in a query letter is pretty unnecessary considering it's a a short document. Another kind of structural thing is, so this novel is poised to be the first in a series of four, each spanning a week's time in the month of February. I like that you're planning ahead, but the most important thing to remember, especially if this isn't a kind of a classical, you know, or a classic genre type of novel, is that your first book has to be a success for there to be a series, right? Nobody really kind of gives anybody a series in terms of their first book deal. Of course it happens, but it's rare, right? So the most important thing is to write one really, 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 really great book and really hope that it breaks out, right? And that's how you get more books. Not planning a series doesn't get you books, right? A really huge breakout book that's super successful that more people want to read about, that gets you a series. So so I think this person just might be thinking too big at this stage in terms of what you're pitching to me, right? You're pitching me this book, this one book. So series potential is fine. That's what I usually always say, right? This book has series potential. That's totally fine with me if you want to say that, but in the query letter, you're pitching me one book. Okay, next, we're getting into the body paragraph here. We have a lot of names, okay? We have Blair, Adam, then we have Adam's wife, then we have Hattie, and then we have Caleb, and Caleb's last name is Davis, which kind of sounds like a first name, right? That's all in the first five lines. Way too many names. It comes off synopsis-y, and it also makes us forget who the main character is, and it's very, very, very important for us to be very confident about who that main character is. So just too many names there. So we got to kind of figure out a way to narrow this paragraph down a little bit and really focus on who it is you want us to focus on, right? This is your job as the creator of this world to tell us who should we be focusing on. 
So I think the second half of that paragraph and then the next paragraph are much, much, much stronger. So I, I really like that. So starting with, he's heard the speculations that the vice is overtaking the hills and haulers. Starting that, much stronger. And the last body paragraph is much stronger as well. So we're kind of figuring out exactly like how deep these roots run, right? That kind of stuff. That's really, really strong. But really just focusing on what it is that's exciting about this. And I'll talk about this a little, a little bit more when we talk about the pages themselves. But I'm not convinced that this is an upmarket thriller. I actually think it's a literary thriller. And I also think that our comps are a little bit competing. So I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to our pages. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add? No. All right, Carly, so what was in those opening pages before you give us a critique of them? Okay, so our title is Be a Mighty Downpour. And we essentially start with a prologue. It is not called a prologue. It's called February 6th. And it's a memory. So the line is, some memories carry more weight than others. And then we go back to a memory from when this character was seven. I pretty much think this is unnecessary. I really like that first line. But another reason that I don't love this opening is that it's from a child's point of view. So anyway, so that's our little child's POV prologue. And then we get into the rest of the material. So then we start with Sunday, February 1st, and we're in Blair's point of view. So we start with our character in the kitchen. Our character is on their second cup of coffee, kind of having a slow morning. It's kind of rainy, slushy, snowy, mix, cold, definitely setting setting the atmosphere there. So we know that she is staying with her brother. She talks about hearing her brother's footsteps. But again, a very slow morning here. We're talking about putting toast in the toaster and waiting for the toast to toast. We're going through backstory of family and grandparents and, and why she lives where she lives. And then we get a line that says, close to the end of our sample, we were awoken in the night to the news that our friend Caleb Davis has died. So that's our opening material. And so my analysis of the material, kind of, as I said, going back to my query, is that I think this is literary. So I'm feeling pretty conflicted about the comp, Lucy Foley's The Guest List, because that is incredibly pacey. And so this person in their query letter is saying, has pacing akin to Lucy Foley's The Guest List. I mean, that book is a rocket ship on its way to outer space. And this is talking about, you know, a nice slow morning of, you know, we're making toast, right? So very, very different vibe. So I would definitely be taking out that comp and I would be calling this book a literary thriller just based on what I'm reading. I also think the first line of the book should be something to the effect of, you know, we were awoken in the night to the news that our, our friend Caleb Davis died. I mean, this frames the entire morning, which is so important, right? Why is this morning different than all the rest of all the other mornings of your life, right? And that's why you're starting this book in this place. And so I just want to encourage this writer, especially if you want to go for pace, that we really need to kind of frame our morning a little bit more clearly in terms of, you know, why is this special? And why are we doing so much thinking, right? Everybody has different reactions to grief and dramatic news. Some people are in a daze making making their toast really slowly in the morning. Some people are upset. Some people have all these different reactions. But no matter what, we need to kind of understand this character's slow morning, I think, a little bit more, especially if this is going to be a thriller. So I think that that's pretty important. I would also get rid of a lot of the backstory. You know, we talk a lot about Adam and Mandy, so the brother and his wife getting married the summer after Granny and Granddad died, right? Not that that isn't important and beautiful. It's just we're talking about very important real estate here at the at the beginning 
journey of the novel. And I, I just don't know that we need it. But coming back to the toast, as you know, I've been talking a lot about toast. And really, I feel like this whole section is an homage to toast. But I actually really love this bit about toast because in a moment of grief, like you're going to focus on something, right? And, and really, it's it's this toast. So, so the line that I liked was, standing from the table, I put a piece of bread in the olive green toaster on the counter, which too had come with the house. It was probably a fire hazard as it had been toasting bread so long. But for some reason, the food always tasted better coming out of it. So I think there were a lot of beautiful lines here, but I think we just need a little bit of a reframe and, and a little bit of clarification about the fact that I do think this is a, a literary thriller. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And also to read when you're looking at literary thrillers, I think is we begin at the end because that's a literary thriller, but it's still incredibly fast paced. Besides the fact that you want to keep underlying certain sentences, you still want to keep turning pages. It's the speed at which you're turning pages that's stopping you from underlining the sentences. Cece, did you have a take on that? No. All right. We're going to now end with Cece's last query letter. Will you read that for us, Cece? Let's do it. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, my name is Hannah Bonham Young, and I am grateful to submit the beginning pages of my manuscript, Next of Kin, and this query letter for you for feedback on the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast, which is a personal favorite of me. Next of Kin is a contemporary romance with first-person point of view completed at just over 61,000 words. Chloe is in a grocery store bathroom when she receives a call from Child Protective Services. Her birth mother, Connie, has unexpectedly given birth and requested Chloe be contacted as a potential next-of-kin care provider for the baby. Having grown up in foster care herself, due to Connie's struggles with substance abuse and addiction, Chloe is determined to provide a home for her baby sister. After an emotional reunion, Chloe begins the process of becoming a qualifying foster guardian as her sister heals in the NICU. Though she has found a successful candidate in each other category, Chloe fails to pass the financial evaluation, having just recently graduated and found work. This leaves her with two options. Wait until CPS's financial reevaluation in January and see her sister placed in foster care until then, or participate in CPS's new initiative, Team Up. Team Up partners potential guardians who would otherwise be approved, but are missing one key element such as income or housing. Team Up partners Chloe with Warren, a man her age who is trying to get care of his 15-year-old brother Luke, who is deaf. Warren makes a terrible first impression, seemingly annoyed by Chloe's optimism and frustrated at CPS's arrangement. They agree to cohabitate until January, giving time for Warren to find housing and Chloe to prove income. Slowly, their relationship begins to shift as their mutual attraction grows and their lives further intertwine. There is a gravitational pull between the two, a familiar history of pain that swirls in one another. They are forced with a choice, risk their arrangement for the chance of something more between them or attempt to end it before it begins. I am, as of yet, an unpublished author, though I have been writing for the enjoyment of myself and loved ones for years. I have received awards for submissions in short story fiction, poetry, and nonfiction storytelling on a local level, and am currently trying to navigate entering into higher education to pursue writing whilst juggling parenting two boys. My goal is to write romance books through an intersectionalist feminist lens 
that celebrate empowered female characters, empathetic male characters, and a host of diverse LGTBQIA plus characters that emulate myself and the crew of people around me. All the best, Hannah Bonham Young. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Will you give us your take on that query letter? All right. My thoughts on the query letter. In terms of the first paragraph, I recommend writing the title Next of Kin in all caps. I think this is really important. I know I keep saying this, but I promise it interferes with readability. Also, while I do love diving into the pages to find out what POV the author chose, first person, third person, second person, it's not necessary to share that in the query letter. It's just taking up space. So I would remove that. I love that the author gave us title, word count, genre. Comps are missing, though. So something to consider. Is this intentional? I think comps are super important. They do set the tone and they do tell me if something is for fans of this person or that person. I would begin the plot paragraph with the characters, the protagonist's age. So for example, 25-year-old Chloe is in a grocery store bathroom, or 23-year-old Chloe, or however old she is. This is important because I want to know exactly how old she is that changes the situation, especially if she's in her 20s. 24 is really different from 29, given what she's facing, right? Like given the fact that she's going through this huge thing. The hook is very compelling. It's great. I would compress the paragraph, though. There's a lot of unnecessary detail. Like, for example, why do we have the line, having just recently graduated and found work? We don't need to know that in the query letter. It can be tempting to share details to add context, but stick to the big picture facts. In the next, the following paragraph, there's also a lot of overwriting. So the line that starts with, there is a gravitational pull between the two. Do we need that line? Because you already established that they're attracted to each other in the previous line. So you're just developing something that you've already established. I would do a read through for grammatical errors. I did find one or two here and there. And very odd use of hyphen. I wonder if it's intentional, like a poetic license situation, right? There's a lot of words that typically aren't hyphenated that are hyphenated. So if it's not intentional, I would remove it just because it is distracting. Like, for example, loved ones. I don't think that is traditionally hyphenated. And if it is a poetic device that you're using in your manuscript, keep it in the manuscript. Don't do it on the query letter. We get so many query letters that it can be really important to just keep your query letter as simple and direct as possible. Yeah, these are my thoughts on the query letter. Okay, what was in those opening pages, Cece? So the story begins with a timestamp that reads June 14th. We don't know the year or the place. Chloe, our protagonist, gets a phone call from CPS. She's told that Connie, that's her birth mother, has just had a baby and that Chloe is listed as a potential caregiver. Chloe is visibly shaken and confused. Her reaction is to say her age and then to wonder why that was the first detail that she picked to highlight when there are so many other details that she could have chosen in terms of her reaction to this, you know, really, really earth shattering news. And then Chloe is given a contact information to call should she decide to pursue the option of becoming a caregiver. Chloe has a flashback to the day when she was four and her mom didn't pick her up from school. That was the day she went home with the teacher. And it's the day that started her bouncing around from, from foster home to foster home. Until one day her mom did prove her sobriety, moved back in. But unfortunately, that only lasted a little while because her mom relapsed and she had to go into foster care again. The memory makes Chloe realize that she has no choice, truly. She can't allow the same thing to happen to her sister. She needs to come to her sister's rescue. So I do have notes in terms of what's working 
well and what's not. What's working really well is there's a very powerful inner life here. As a general rule, I love inner life and I I think that the author has really, really nailed some, some moments in the story. So for example, when she's talking to the CPS person, the CPS person says, I'm aware that it's been over 10 years since you've seen or heard from your mother. And through inner life, we find out that's not true. There are plenty of times in high school that she showed up, but Chloe never reported those times. So I think the author is doing an excellent job at telling us what remains unsaid. There's also some incredibly powerful lines, like, for example, when she's in her memory thinking about when her mom didn't pick her up and her mom did manage to come back, but then, you know, relapsed again. There was There's a line that reads, as if I was a sobriety chip and not a human. And it's just, it's just very powerful. So the author did a really great job with inner life and emotion. In terms of things that I think could be improved, dialogue could be compressed, and the flashback doesn't need to be there. It's These are my two cents, obviously. So for example, the entire first page could be compressed in two lines. It's something like, I was halfway through my lunch when I got the call telling me that Connie had given birth. I hadn't even known she was pregnant. That covers the entire first page. And you don't use this exact line because it's not well written, nor is the character eating lunch. But I'm just saying you could add... Scene, meaning I was in the middle of something, with context in two lines. I also feel that, you know, about the the flashback, I understand that we need the emotional context of this being really, really important for her. But we don't need to be in a flashback. Honestly, the inner life is so well written that I kind of understood already her emotional context. I wouldn't mind a line or three about squashing down a memory of being abandoned by her mom. Like the memory could try to bubble up to her surface of her mind and then she could bring it back down. But we don't need to see the dialogue. We don't need the details. We don't need to know, you know, the the color of the teacher's hair or, or whatever the detail was. And as a minor note, but I'm telling you this tripped me up. I would choose names that start with different letters, unless it's important for the plot that they both start with the C. I kept getting Connie and Chloe confused as I was reading. You know, I was thinking to myself, oh, so Connie's doing this. Nope, nope, that was Chloe. And so, yeah, I just think that, you know, if, if it's not necessary to have both their names begin with the same letter, it's something that I would watch out for. That's it for today's Box with Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that, again, look at the website, biancamaray.com, and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Max Sweeney's, The Rumpus, Brevity, Tonight, and elsewhere. Originally from Jacksonville, Florida, she currently lives in Pittsburgh with her daughters. The short story collection that we're discussing today, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, was the winner of the Penn Faulkner Award, winner of the Story Prize, winner of the LA Times Book Prize, Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, and it's been adapted into an HBO series. It's my pleasure to welcome Disha Folio. Disha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. 
We set up this interview in April last year when I read The Secret Lives of Church Ladies and I loved it so much and I reached out to Disha and she was fully booked until now. So I am bouncing off the walls, Disha, that I'm finally able to chat with you. Yes, it has been a wild ride, 2020 and 2021. So happy to be here. I love seeing the kind of success you have been experiencing, especially when it comes to a short story collection, because writers are told time and again that they hard sells, don't. Most agents will get a short story collection and go, oh, I love it, but I can't sell it. So why don't you write a novel instead? So Mm -hmm. I really want to discuss the journey with you for our listeners who write short stories. Now, I know that initially you got your agent by writing a co-parenting book with your ex-husband. Is that right? Yes. So that's how we first landed the agent. And she knew I was working on a novel then. And so I thought my next book was going to be a novel, but there was a detour because I wrote the beginning of it and the end. I just got stuck in the middle, but I started working on these stories and it was my agent that suggested that I put those stories and build a collection. That's amazing because most agents are telling (laughs) authors the opposite. So, so I feel like you landed with the exact right agent because she was encouraging you with this, right? Yes. I have the best agent in the world. I'm a little biased, of course, but one of the things that makes her great is that she does support me in whatever I do. And she always says books get written when they get written. And so she has always encouraged me and kind of nudged me along and she checks in, but there's never been a pressure like you should do this because it's going to be most marketable. Because I think she understands that whatever you write, you've got to live with it forever. (laughs) So it, it really needs to be something that comes from a place deep within you that you're really passionate about. And it's not something that can be, or it shouldn't be coerced out of you. I guess it could be (laughs) or coerced out of you, but she's just the biggest champion of whatever it is I want to be doing. And for our listeners who are in the querying trenches, could you tell them who she is and what agency she's with? Yes. Her name is Danielle Chiati, and she is with Upstart Crow Literary Agency. Wonderful. So listeners, take note. And something that I want to discuss here, Disha, is how she went out on submission with the big five and you were just getting a ton of rejections. Let's talk about that. Yeah, we are, as you said already, short story collections are a hard sell. I don't know beyond that what the issues were. They were the usual things. It's not a good fit for us. One publisher did say they thought that the stories needed too much work, but that's not the answer we got from West Virginia University Press. And so I think a lesson for us as writers is that so much of this is subjective and to try not to take the rejection personally. And in fact, one of the stories in the collection Peach Cobbler is a story that's never been published anywhere. And before the book, when I was trying to get some of the stories published, it got rejected more than any other story that I sent out. And now when readers tell me they have a favorite story in the collection, it's usually Peach Cobbler. So again, there's no science to this and everything isn't for everyone, but just believing that your stories will find their readers. But I think the key is, as a writer, to be all in about it. I think that's really important. Yeah. And two takeaways from that. So the one, when it sold to the publisher who published it, who are now very happy that they published it because this book is just winning everything and it's done so amazingly well. How much editing did that editor have to do? And I know it was a white editor, Mm -hmm. 
And I know that sometimes there's concern with a white editor and a black author mm -hmm. as to how much of the stories will be changed because they're looking at it through a white lens. So could you tell us how much editing was done and again, what that process was like? I had a dream editing experience with Sarah Georgie at West Virginia University Press. It's definitely a better book than what I turned in. If I could sum it up, there were places where she just made it tighter and clearer and asked me really good questions, but it wasn't a major overhaul. Something I learned about university presses that I didn't know is that when you publish with them, there's the reviewer process. And so they have reviewers read your book, give feedback and make recommendations. Publish this book with minimal revisions. Publish this book and here's some suggested revisions. Do not publish this book unless it's a major overhaul or don't publish this book at all. So my book got good reviews and there was not a lot to be revised. So I feel good about that. But I love revision. That's actually my favorite part of the process. So I had a great time with Sarah knowing that we were working together as collaborators to make the best book possible. And then I had those fears that many Black writers have about being edited by someone white. And so she had only her lens to see it through, which is as a white woman. But what she didn't do was try to force the narrative as if my ultimate reader was a white reader and that we had to somehow cater to them or educate or explain things to them. That's what she didn't do. And that's the difference. I think that's what we want as Black writers is not to be told that we need to write for white people or for their comfort or for their clarity. Google is free and we do what we've always done when we read things that have words or concepts or something that we don't understand. We look it up, we ask someone. But this idea that there's some white gaze that we have to be beholden to, that was not part of my process at all. So I'm really, really thankful for that. And so I got to really kind of revel in writing a book that is one reviewer called it unapologetically black. That was not happenstance. That was definitely intentional. Yeah. And as a white reader, when I come to work like yours, I want it to be unapologetically black. Otherwise, I'll read white authors. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's, it's, it's wonderful when you read something that is unapologetically what it is, because that is why we read, is to live these lives that we won't live, to have these experiences that we will never have, and to kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes mm -hmm. and walk around in them and understand that experience a bit better. And it was absolutely immersive. It was just wonderful. Something else you said earlier is in terms of getting the stories published mm -hmm. beforehand. Now, for our listeners who are working on short story collections, mm -hmm. how essential is that to sell it to a publisher or to get an agent? Because I know you already had your agent, sure. but some of them are still trying to get mm -hmm. agents. So how important is that? So much of publishing is people wanting to see, one, obviously, that you can sell books, that your writing is marketable, that you maybe even have an audience base already, and that your work can sell, that your work has appeal to the markets that you're aiming for. So if you have published previously, it suggests that, yes, this is work for which there is an audience. And so an agent wants to know that and a publisher wants to know that. So having some stories published in reputable publications help, but certainly it's not a deal breaker if you don't. I mean, if you've got some stunning stories and you've just never published them anywhere, a savvy agent will look at the story and not just your byline. But my agent strategy was to, rather than have a whole completed collection, 
to shop the manuscript as a partial manuscript, which doesn't always happen with fiction, right? So for nonfiction, agents and publishers want to see a book proposal. For fiction, they want to see a completed novel or a completed short story collection. Or my agent strategy, which I'd never heard of this before, she kind of gave me a challenge, which was get three stories published. And then we would shop those three stories as here the published stories. And it would be part of a larger collection and we could kind of go to market that way. And so they could see that there was already interest in these stories. So that was the strategy. And so being strategic about where it got published and trying to aim really high and those sorts of things. But I also know people who published collections and none of the stories were previously published. So I think it just depends on who you're working with. But having the stories already published was a real confidence boost for me because I felt like it was validation that, yeah, I'm on the right track. I can do this. And then it also helped to have sort of a starting point, like, okay, I have these three stories. What other kinds of stories around these same themes would be great to build an interesting collection? And so I had kind of a starting point to work for. I had a flash piece in there. One of the first three stories was a queer story. And some stories have characters that are adults and some have characters that are girls. So you start to think about it like a puzzle, these unique pieces to build something cohesive. Those publications kind of bolstered me along and it was my homework. So I was always the kid that liked homework. So my agent gave me homework. I did my homework and it got me moving. And I think you said in an interview that it was your agent who first sort of looked at the collection and spoke of church ladies. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think of them that way at all. I knew I was writing a lot from nostalgia and a lot from memory. And I had grown up with women who were inside and outside of the church. I was always in church. I was raised by my mother and my grandmother and they sent me to church, but they didn't go to church until I was in college. So I had an interesting kind of relationship with church and family and Black women and looking at Black women and trying to kind of figure things out. And so when I wrote the stories, I think I was so close to it and it was so personal, not in that the stories were autobiographical, but that these were people that I knew and loved. I was kind of mining my childhood, people in circumstances rather. It's probably more circumstances than people. I wasn't writing about the individual people. And so as an outsider, my agent saw that thread of these are church ladies. And so she said, you know, I think you can build a collection. I really like these church ladies stories. And I was like, huh, okay. And so the theme that emerged from that conversation was, okay, these are stories about Black women, sex, and the Black church. And so that's a lot more expansive, I think, than church ladies, because church ladies kind of gives you this one image. And so some of the women in the stories and girls are what we call church lady adjacent. They're not church ladies themselves, but someone in their life who is influential is. So that kind of broadened it up. But in terms of titles, you can't beat the catchiness of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Epic title, (laughs) really attention grabbing. And I loved how some characters made a reappearance, Mm -hmm. sometimes many years later, (laughs) etc. So it was kind of like interlinked some of them, but very, very loosely. Was that something you were aiming for? Or is it just something that sort of came out in the writing? Because I know when you spend time with the character, you love them and you can't help but think, where are they in the future? So readers have told me that they've seen some different connections between stories, but 
from my perspective, <laughs> there are only two stories and one character that are actually connected, and it wasn't intentional. So the main character in Peach Cobbler is a teenager when we end the story. And then there's a, another story later in the collection called Instructions for Married Christian Husbands. And I was working on that story, and the character there, the narrator, was describing herself, and I'm writing, and, and I make the best Peach Cobbler in town. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Olivia from Peach Cobbler. So I used to not believe it when writers said that the characters kind of showed up and told them who they were and you're just taking dictation. I really used to roll my eyes at that. But that's really what happened with Olivia. I think that while I was happy with the ending of Peach Cobbler, it ends in a way where we're not sure what happens to Olivia. And I think I was still holding on to her in some way, subconsciously. And so then she popped up like, here's where I landed, for better or for worse. <laughs> and so I just kind of went with it. Those were my two favorite stories. Oh, the um, Peach Cobbler was my favorite. And then I got to Instructions for Married Christian Husbands. And then that was completely my favorite. And when I finished that, I was like, is Olivia good or is Olivia not good? And that's what I liked about that story, because there's a part of that story that you're like, oh, she's good. She's fine. And then you're like, but is she? Okay. Um, which, <laughs> yeah. It's like, is she okay, though? Because I'm not quite sure. And for you to be able to do that in so few pages blows my mind because I need an entire novel to explore these kinds of things. I did a short story for Audible and that was 16,000 words for a short story. I mean, it just shows you, you know. So for our listeners, what is your process? What is your advice to be able to, in so few pages, give this character who we fall in love with, have a plot that keeps us turning pages? Have you got some kind of story arc that you try and follow? Is it just instinctual or instinctive for you now? How does that work for you? I think it's sort of giving up the idea that somehow we're just supposed to get it down right the first time and approach it as if when I'm writing initially, I'm telling myself the story. I am getting to know the characters. I'm getting to know why they do what they do. And this Instructions for Married Christian Husbands, initially, I'd written about 20 pages of a more traditional narrative because this one is playing with form, the final version. But initially, it was a more traditional narrative. I played around with it as first person. I played around with it as third person. It was basic premise, this woman who has serial affairs. And then we're focusing in on one guy and his family and how do they meet and what happens. And I had all of this written before the collection sold. And I knew that it was one of the stories that I wanted to have in the collection. And so I was working and it's actually the last story I wrote for the collection. And when I got to those 15, 20 pages, I was so not interested. Like nothing was speaking to me about the situation because I was thinking, what can I say that hasn't already been said? They're having an affair. Do they get caught? Ooh, you know, or do they catch feelings? Ooh, you know, and none of it was resonating. Then I started playing a little bit with form and this idea of subverting it, right? So typically when there's this sort of triangle of an affair, the man is centered. The man usually if he's the one who's married, he makes the rules. And I was thinking, well, what if instead of kind of pitting the women against each other and they're on the margins, and in fact, the mistress is even in popular culture called the side chick, instead of her being in the margin, what if she was centered? What if she made the rules? And what if it was an actual rule book? 
that I got excited about in a way that those other pages I did not get excited about. But I never throw anything away. And so I looked at those pages and tried to figure like, well, what's worth salvaging? What holds my interest? And there were two parts. There was the introduction, which kind of sets the tone. You, the infantilized, accomplished godly Christian women are low-hanging fruit. And I had fun with that whole passage and that sort of sets it up and that introduces the manual. And then there was a section in those original pages where I'd written a scene where our main character is sort of thinking about the different men and what they're wearing and how they undress, the ritual of taking off the ring and taking off your clothes and where do you put them and then when it's over. And I like that. So I had my two pieces and then I just sort of built the rest from there. But if I had written those 20 pages and thought, oh, this is awful and saw it as a failure, I would have missed out on something. But I think it was absolutely essential for me to write those pages, even though such a huge percentage of that didn't even show up in the actual story. But I got a sense of who the character was and I got a sense of what I didn't want to do. I think sometimes, too, when we write, it's like, okay, I got that all out. Nope, that's not it. (laughs) You know, you're just kind of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. I love that sentiment. And it's so true because we feel like that's wasted time. It's wasted pages, but it's part of the process. It's like mining for gold to get to the gold Mm -hmm. and you can't bypass that process. And that's so much easier in a short story than a novel because you write a whole novel and then you're like, this is not what I want. And then it's much harder (laughs) to rewrite the whole damn thing to figure out what you want. What I love, especially about short stories is how you can play around with form and structure in a way that you can't do in novels. Like somebody like Bernadine Evaristo, she can do it Mm -hmm. in like girl, woman, other. But for the rest of us who are not Bernadine Evaristo, (laughs) yeah, for the rest of us mere mortals, it's much, much harder in a novel to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I could see you having fun with this. Mm -hmm. I could see it coming through on the page that you were having fun with playing around with form. Yeah. And I think we don't talk enough about play and experimentation. And I think there's so much pressure that we put on ourselves and other people put on us as writers because we feel like we are invalidated. We don't feel real until we published or until we published this kind of thing or we published in this place. And there's this constant pressure to prove ourselves. And so I think one of the hardest things but essential to do as a writer is shaking all of that off and finding that place of play and experimentation. And I'm going to write and I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm here for the discovery. So much of writing should be, I think, is to discover what it is, what you want to say. So sometimes you know, but sometimes you think you know, because I thought that I was going to write this kind of story about this woman who had serial affairs, and it turned out to be a different kind of story. And so all of those pages and all of that time, it's an exercise in discovery. And often for me, those are the most interesting stories, more so, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's one where I knew what I wanted to say, and I don't know that I ever know. I mean, I kind of have an idea and I start writing towards something, but I'm usually discovering things as I go, but that's not rewarded, especially if we feel a pressure to have completed pages, a completed story. But so much of the process is not recognized as valid. The time we spend with something in our head, and that could be a day, it could be a decade. There's an essay I wrote about my father that I think I was writing in my head for a decade. 
before I just sat down one day and did it as a flash essay. Previously, I wrote 10, 15, 20 pages, and it was a narrative of every horrible thing my father had ever done. Because at that time, I was writing it because I needed the validation of, I need somebody to see that this is what happened. But there was nothing that made it of interest to other people besides me. It was really a a journal entry. And so, so much of this too is figuring out what's a journal entry and what's a story. But I was sitting with that for a decade. And then next time I sat down to write about my father, I don't even know if that piece is 500 words. It's definitely not 600 words. And I said everything I needed to say. Yeah. And what you've just said resonates with me so much because on this podcast, we're trying to help emerging writers. Mm -hmm. And so we give a lot of rules. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that, because we're trying to make it easier for writers. And we go with the tried and trusted way of doing it. And that isn't always good because then that makes writers more cautious and it makes them less likely to experiment Mm -hmm. and have that fun. So it is finding that balance, you know, absolutely. And like you say, the 10 years a story percolates in your mind, that's part of the process. No one can see it. 500 to 600 words would not have happened without all that percolation. So Exactly. And, And it's also, it's grace for ourselves and then grace for the work. I talked to a lot of writers who were like, I need to write this story because I need for the world to see my soul and I want my mother to know this. And I was like, yeah, that's a lot of pressure to put on the writing and yourself. Can it just be a story? Can it just be an essay? Writing can be cathartic and therapeutic, but if we're demanding so much of it, I think it robs us and it robs the writing. And you don't feel that freedom to explore and discover if I must bear my soul or I must get justice. And writing can get you justice, but I think sometimes it happens when we come at it more sideways. At least that's been my experience. Amazing. Our time is up, Disha. What an absolute joy chatting with you. We can't wait to see the HBO series. I know that you're helping write that and helping produce that. So we are looking out for that. And we hope to have you back next time with whatever project you're working on next. Thank you so much, Bianca. And I wish you well and wish all the listeners who are writers well with everything they want to accomplish. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.